AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hey Matt, um, so I hear you have a pretty cool story about some new uh, upgrades to Windows Defender. Yeah, so Microsoft announced recently that Windows Defender is now capable of running entirely inside a sandbox. Well, let's say, well, well maybe not entirely. <laughs> so that's the interesting thing about it, and they do go into detail in their blog post, because the decision to run to a sandbox has some benefits, uh, but it also requires you to sort of separate the functions of what you would consider a normal antivirus. The reason you would sandbox your antivirus is that antivirus is a very complex set of software that has to open and handle different file types and different sorts of handles to other objects. And the more complex software is, generally that's when you start to see uh, interesting bugs creep in that make it vulnerable. So sandboxing is a great idea because you can then limit the impact of those sorts of things. So if, you know, even if somebody manages to compromise the AV, they can't get very far from there. There's other, there are hoops they might have to jump through to get out of that sandbox. The way that Microsoft went ahead and implemented this, which I think is the right way to do it, is to separate the functions of opening up files and getting handles to other objects, and then passing the content that needs to be analyzed into the sandbox. And that's where everything that has to actually parse stuff runs, the things that have a potential for being vulnerable, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they talk a lot about the different ways, um, things they've added to code running inside the sandbox. So like when you're in the sandbox, no other code can run, only signed code can run, you know, all the usual mitigations that you've, you would find in a Windows system that might be turned on, might be turned off, it's all turned on inside the sandbox. Um, it sounds like they put a lot of thought into it. If people want to try it out, the instructions are publicly available for enabling this within Windows Defender and Windows 10. So I would say, you know, if you have the time and the interest, try it out. I personally don't know of any other antivirus that does something like this. Although I was very curious because Microsoft made a big deal and said, you know, this is the first time that a fully functional AV has been able to do this. Mm. Well, it turns out it's not technically true because somebody else was able to get uh, an antivirus running within a, uh, a sandbox, and that was also Windows Defender. So about a year ago, a group called Trail of Bits decided to give it a shot oh. and found a way to get it running within inside a sandbox. So. This may be a response. I mean, it's been about a year, and Microsoft may have seen the value of this sort of not super production-worthy version of a sandbox version of Defender, but at least a proof of concept that shows that, yeah, this will run. It'll all work. Um, but this seems to have a lot more spit and polish on it, and a little more um, thought towards like I.O. inside and outside of the, the sandbox, because passing things through that gate uh, can get pretty intensive, so they had to make some decisions as, do I pass a whole file through? Do I pass the parts of the file that I need? You know, how much of it wow. can I, how far can I tune it for performance instead of, you know, so. It's a really cool article. I think it's worth reading. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a good thing. Obviously, we'll, you know, be sitting here waiting for, you know, some story to pop maybe six months, a year from now about how they, you know, how a, sample has managed to figure out that it actually is running in this mm -hmm. contained version and how it managed to find its way 
off of it and onto the real OS, right? Yep. So I, I imagine there people are going to start taking shots at this immediately. Right. I think six months is a long time. That's away. right. Um, I was kind of curious because it sounds like they wrote the code to work both in a sandbox version and outside of sandbox, like the same code that knows that. Okay. It can tell the difference. Uh, and work in both environments. I wonder if there's some flag somewhere that says, do I run in sandbox mode today or not? Because it seems to be determined at runtime. If you could if you could force it out of the sandbox because of a flag, that that would make me a little nervous, right? If it's something that you could pass to it to say, okay, get out of that, get out of that sandbox. I agree. Uh, and it seems kind of a weird thing that they would they would mention that yes, this is some sort of runtime decision that gets made. If you can influence the decision, you can effectively set the flag, I think. So we'll see. So I, I give it I give it a month well, before we see our uh, first cracks in this armor. Okay. The mere fact that it is running in a sandbox is something that everybody should be looking to do. So, you know, hopefully it will get to a point where Microsoft it's just standard, right? It will just run that way on all of their operating systems. So John, we've been lamenting the state of security in, in Android for a while here, but it sounds like Google has a plan to sort of force the OEMs to support the devices for at least a little while. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure, yeah. What they've kind of done is, is they've formalized uh, a plan that's, that's kind of been out there for some time, and that flagship devices, so devices that have more than 100,000 uh, customers on them, have to get basically two years of support. So that means that they're going to get patches um, at least four times within one year of the launch of a new device, and that the second year they're going to get at least, I don't know, it, 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 it's also probably four if you really want to think about it, but it, Android devices typically only have about two years worth of life anyway. So this should carry most devices through, you know, basically from introduction through their, their normal usable life, getting a security pass. We know the importance of patching, and now that they're going to enforce this with their devices, you know that at least for two years, you're going to have a pretty secure environment, right? The problem is, I think, from my perspective is, is that most people hold on to their devices for much more than two years. Yeah. I so do. I don't. I mean, I don't know if, if you've seen statistics on how you know how many devices older than two years are still out there, but I have to imagine that that number is staggering. Sure. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty bad. And I don't mean that it's like in necessarily a negative way. It's just like you said, people hold on to the devices as long as they get use out of them. Um, the 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 challenge you you run into is, is that with you know like I said these devices. You know, operating system updates, security patch updates, you know, all these things are, you know, a, a bit of a challenge to keep track of. So, to, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think most of the OEMs, especially the major ones, do a pretty darn good job of keeping those those patches up to date. You know, even even three, sometimes four years past their, their distribution. Um, but it is... You know, it's not guaranteed, and I think that's what Google's trying to do here is to make it a little bit more on that guaranteed side. So does this apply to more than just handsets, though? Like if I have a, an Android tablet or a set-top TV device or a, I don't know, a, a refrigerator. I mean, what does this apply to only certain <laughs> classes of devices? 
Yeah, that's that's it gets a little bit. The answer is yes and no. (laughs) I, I think that you find that those IoT devices or refrigerators don't sell that flagship number, you know, that magic number as much. Um, you also find um, the tablets are, are a little bit more, I don't know, I, I don't want to say lacking, but they're a little bit more delayed at times with updates. Again, the, the big ones, the big name ones are, but if you go buy, you know, something off of, of you know, you know, you know, from your neighbor who picked it up as a freebie, you know, from something or, you know, at a marketing thing or whatever. A lot of those devices that are made overseas, you know, the tablets and whatnot, are probably never going to get an update. I mean, ever. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I also would would want to know how are they how are they going to sort of, and I know enforce is too strong of a word, but how are they going to ensure that the the updates actually do get installed on these end devices. So, you know, what's the what's the method? You know, so are they gonna is it gonna pop up a message on the thing saying, hey, I've got an update, you need to do this and then, you know, and then be kind of uh, intrusive in terms of, you know, being yeah. in your face to say, hey, mm-hmm. by the way, there was one I, I told you about last week, you haven't installed it, you know, you need to do that. That kind of stuff. Well, that's how Android phones actually do it these days. You'll get a little icon that says, you know, updates available, you'll download it, and then it'll say, when you're ready, you know, it's going to reboot your device, but you'll get the installation. Right. So it does interact with the user. That's, I think that's the right way to do it. I think, I hope that's something mandated by uh, the user interface. Well, if it's Android and they don't make too many patches to it, it should probably work that way. So I'm excited to see how it pans out. Hopefully they can discover that it's not such a painful process to provide these patches for longer periods of time than they're actually required to by their agreement. And maybe it just becomes a regular thing that now patching is part of that life cycle uh, and it just works out. Well, Manny, as I'm getting older, my memory is not as good as it used to be. And I've heard that you have an interesting story about some brain stimulation. Yeah, so this is basically some new research from Kaspersky and the University of Oxford Functional Neurosurgery Group. Um, And they are talking about, you know, in the future, there being the possibility to attack memories. Um, And what they're saying here is basically that they've got these brain stimulation devices that exist today they're called neurostimulators and implantable pulse generators. They are used today for the treatment of things like uh, Parkinson's, uh, OCD, uh, depression. So the, the research goes into these risk scenarios that they developed as they started to look at this, this new technology. Um, and so they had four, of, four risk scenarios. The first one is exposed connected infrastructure. So. Uh, what they were talking about here is is obviously these devices they have some sort of online presence you know to be able to transmit the the data that they're getting from these devices they're able to transmit them back to so they have some sort of like online portals so that immediately as we all know you know that's going to work just like any other portal that's available out on the on the internet mm-hmm. it's something that's hackable uh, the next one is insecure or unencrypted data transfer. So they're talking about these devices are potentially using things like Bluetooth mm-hmm. to talk from the device 
to the management thing, which may be you know like an iPad or some sort of device that they're using to communicate with this. Mm -hmm. So you know Bluetooth, we know that there's some uh, vulnerabilities against that technology that may be taken advantage of. Um, desi design constraints. So they're talking about um, so you have to build these things and you have to build ways to access them. They may use passwords. So let's say. Matt has one of these things implanted in his head and there's emergency, but he's down in Florida at Disney World. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, and he's now needs to go to a doctor down there. Who and doesn't have the keys to my brain. Exactly. Yeah. Who may not have the password. So they're thinking, well, are they going to build potentially back doors into these things so that if you're in an emergency, they know some way that they can get into this device to, to you know, get the attention that you may need at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're talking about also insecure behavior by medical staff. So they're talking about like, hey, I've got the tablet that has the software that runs the device that's in Matt's head. But I'm going to use this device to go get my Yahoo mail or, mm -hmm. you know, or pull my, you know, my Gmail. Or I'm going to leave the, 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 the interface with a default password because I'm too lazy to change. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, obviously they're, you know, thinking through all of these different risk scenarios, which we all know that uh, obviously they do exist. We've talked about this sort of in the past, but sort of never with this type of device, something that gets implanted in your, in your brain. So in five years, they're actually saying that these devices are going to be able to record brain signals and that, that these brain signals that actually build memories um, and then using these devices to either enhance them or rewrite them, mm. which is just, yeah, again, mind blowing that, you know, that you've got some sort of technology that's going to allow you to do that. And then they even go so far as to say that in 20 years time that you're going to actually be able to control them. And, you know, so it I mean, it kind of goes on and on to talk about that stuff, but very interesting stuff that they were, you know, they're mm. discussing about the, the possibilities here. Well, like I remember growing up and like watching Ghost in the Shell, reading New Romancer and being like, how cool would it be to have a computer in your head? And now I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> right. Not unless I absolutely need one. I do want one, right? You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know in some ways, but it's, it was interesting. I was at DEF CON this year and, and there was a whole room you know, actually a whole big area assigned to bio, you know, biometric and, and biomedical hacking, which was, it was fascinating. I didn't get to spend a lot of time in there, but I thought that was really, you know, this is the type of thing that they're looking at. Yeah. Well, you said that we have uh, five years to fix this yeah. before those things go on the market. Yeah. All maybe, right. Well, who knows? Maybe less. Maybe less. <laughs> The more critical things we hook things up to, like you can hook uh, IoT devices up to a reactor or a generator, and now we're hooking it directly up to the human mind. That's the scary part. Not that things are vulnerable, that you've just added something to the human brain that makes it as vulnerable as these devices. Let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So these are the top 10 most probed ports. It has not been a lot of change this week. I will roll through them just, you know, for reference. Port 23 TCP is Telnet, 445 TCP is SMB, 22 TCP is SSH, 81 TCP is a web port, but it's specifically related to uh, internet-connected cameras, and I think the Satori botnet's the one scanning for that. Uh, 1433 is MS SQL Server, 5555 is Android Debug Bridge, 
3389 is remote desktop protocol. 80ICMP is echo request. AATCP is just generic HTTP web stuff. And 21 is FTP. It is interesting, though, that we have a huge, huge other portion to this graph. I mean, it's, it's more than half this time around, which is kind of a... Kind of, I'm not used to that. I'm used to seeing a huge, huge amount of 23 TCP, you know, dwarfing the rest of it. Uh, Taking a look at the most sources probing, at the top of this list, we have 445 TCP followed by 23. 8080 is another one of those web ports that could be a proxy, could be an IoT device. I'm going to go with IoT on this one. Uh, 5555 we talked about. 80 we talked about. 5900 TCP is a VNC, I think. It's one of those remote uh, desktop sharing protocols. 80 ICMP we talked about. 161 UDP is SNMP, which is kind of an interesting one. That's gone up 21 spots, so we'll talk about that. Uh, 81 TCP is another one of the ports that the uh, Mirai and Satori botnets are scanning for in particular. And 37215 TCP comes in 10th place. It's changed 18 spots since last week, and that one has to do with a Huawei bug that we actually observed a year ago, and there's more interest in it today. These are your scan SIPs on 445 SMB. Uh, I'm showing a 90-day view because the data, the, the week-to-week really kind of looks mostly the same. It looks like it might actually be trending down slightly over the last 90 days, uh, but those daily cycles are still pretty much the same. Port 23 TCP Telnet, nothing really to report here. There's usually ups and downs. This is a 60-day view with a number of scan flows, um, but it's still towards the top, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, scan SIPs on port 81 TCP. This is the uh, vulnerable webcams that Satori is targeting. We had some spikes around uh, 22nd, 23rd, uh, and that's why I'm bringing it up for this week. Uh, but other than that, it seems to be pretty stable around the 9 to 10,000 scan sources per hour range. Uh, we had some major spikes in SNMP traffic in the last 30 days. In fact, in the last 10 days or so, uh, a big bump. Uh, I unfortunately did not have the sources for this one, uh, but we had a huge spike all the way up to 3,000 scan sources per hour. Someone's really interested in SNMP. It's a UDP protocol. Most likely someone's going to try and use it for uh, reflective denial of service attacks. Uh, this is that 32715 TCP. It's a Huawei service port that has a remote code execution bug in it. It's a 30-day view. We actually saw a massive spike back in December of last year. Uh, I'm not showing it here, this is just a 30-day view, but um, nowhere near, that, that completely dwarfed the scanning that we're seeing here, but there's still some significant uh, spikes uh, relative to what we've been seeing before in the last couple of months. Uh, so I figured we'd bring it up. Uh, this is an interesting one, 8082 TCP did not make it to the top 10 for this week, scan sources. Um, but there really hasn't been a lot of activity on it, and all of a sudden we're seeing some major spikes. 400 may not sound like a lot of scan sources per hour, uh, but relative to what we usually see, it's, it's something. Uh, this is 365 days. Uh, you can see there was sort of a, a floor of scanning for this between, I want to say, late February to, to the start of June here. Uh, but now we're just seeing uh, spikes from uh, small, yeah, from... Uh, a higher number of sources for a short amount of time instead of consistent background scanning. And these sources are in Germany? Yes, the majority of them are in Germany. Um, this one I thought was interesting. I brought it up mostly because I'm a gamer. Um, but there was a significant scanning on uh, port 6672 UDP. Turns out this is used by Rockstar Games. Uh, this is a very well-known gaming company. And 
not co at all coincidentally, the start of the scanning coincided with the release of their latest game. So I tend to think this is, this is traffic related to the, the normal play of this game, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. And also the source, source IPs all belong to Take-Two Interactive, which is the parent company for Rockstar, who made the game. Uh, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. It was just sort of a surprise uh, to see it show up suddenly, and then as I dug further, it started to make a lot of sense. It turns out, I think, their previous games, uh, GTA V, actually used the same port as well. You can find a lot of documentation on if you're playing online and you want to play with folks, this is one of the ports you have to have open in order for their, uh, their gameplay, uh, the network gameplay, to work. That's it. Interesting. All right. There was very little change from last week to this week. No major fluctuations. There was a couple things that, you know, that were, there were some, uh, some spikes in the traffic, but nothing, you know, nothing overly uh, concerning. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.